You're listening to an ACA podcast. Um, thank you so much, everyone, for joining us this evening. Uh, my name is Bianca Winata Putri, and I'm the Public Programs Coordinator at the Australian Centre for Contemporary Art. I would like to begin by acknowledging the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation as sovereign custodians of the land on which ACA is situated, and we extend our respects to ancestors and elders past and present, and to all First Nations people who are with us today. Today's program is part of the exhibition and research project, Who's Afraid of Public Space?, which explored the role of public culture, the contested nature of public space, and the character and composition of public life. Who's Afraid of Public Space takes place here at ECA and also extends across Melbourne with a series of satellite exhibitions in collaboration with our cultural partners, as well as installations, events, and projects in the public realm. For more information about our upcoming public programs and off-site projects, you can access it on our website at ECA.Melbourne. Before we start, I'd like to share um, a bit more about this wonderful space that we're in, um, which was developed um, by designers Nicola Cortese, Lauren Crockett, and Stephanie Panis, who were invited to think about libraries and the possibilities for a public resource room within an exhibition space and an exhibition that talks about public space. So this reading space includes a library of written materials on public art, public culture, and public space that have been donated, selected, and recommended as an outcome of an open call that we did last year um, and a collaboration with the Melbourne Art Library. Um, so you can also donate, loan, or suggest a publication via our website. So tonight's panel will be led by the wonderful Nell Fraser from Melbourne Art Library, um, so established in 2020. Uh, right in the middle of the pandemic. Uh, Melbourne Art Library is a not-for-profit lending library that collects specialized art and design texts. Their reading room is at the Nicholas Building in the CBD, and they're open four days a week? Yeah, correct. Um, we are also joined today by Caroline Phillips from the Women's Art Register and Nick Anderson from the Australian Queer Archives, uh, who will be introduced further by now. A few housekeeping items. Um, please silent your phone throughout the event. And we will also take questions towards the end. But as we are quite a small group, I'm very happy for you to take the seats up front. Um, and you know, if you have any questions towards the end, just raise your hand and I'll come over with a microphone. Um, thank you again for joining us and I will hand over to you now. Thanks. Great, thank you, Bianca. And thank you everyone for being here today. Uh, I'd like to also acknowledge that we're meeting um, on the lands of the Wandry people of the Kulin Nations and um, acknowledge and respect that this has been a place of uh, the sharing and celebration of knowledge for tens of thousands of years. I'd like to thank uh, Lauren Crockett and Steph Parnas and Nicola Cortes for including us in this project. It's been great so far um, and this uh, discussion tonight is one of a series of events that we're presenting um, as part of this exhibition in this space. And it's the, f the first um, iteration, but it was meant to be the second, um, of a series that we've called Distribution. And so um, this series, which includes um, this talk about alternative collections, um, on the 23rd of February, we have an introduction to art librarianship um, with Romani Manuel, who's the art librarian or subject librarian at Monash University for art, design and architecture. 
um, and also the president of the Art Libraries Society of Australia and New Zealand, and then a further discussion um, with some publishers of uh, magazines, art magazines in Melbourne. So this kind of series, and we hope that we'll extend it further beyond these three events at ACCA, looks to make visible and question and prod the different ways that information is shared um, in Melbourne and kind of more generally and how as individuals and as organisations we can disrupt that traditional kind of flow of information and um, discuss the power dynamics that are at play um, and lots of other questions that <laughs> we'll talk about today. So as Bianca said, I'm joined today by Nick Henderson from the Australian Queer Archives and Caroline Phillips from the Women's Art Register. Um, so the Australian Queer Archives collects, preserves and celebrates material from the lives and experiences of lesbian, gay, bisexual, trans and gender diverse, intersex, queer, brother boy and straight girl Australians. Established in 1978, ACWA holds the preeminent research collection for LGBTIQ plus histories in Australia. And Nick has been a committee member for 14 years and is um, in charge of collection management and a range of other things. Um, described himself earlier as a slut for collections. Um, has worked across cultural institutions um, in Australia for the past 20 years. Um, anything else you'd like to add? Is That's pretty good. Great. <laughs> um, and the Women's Art Register was established in 1975 and is Australia's living archive of women's art practice and an artist-run not-for-profit community and resource. The Women's Art Register has an open and inclusive policy of collecting items from all artists who identify as women, cis and trans inclusive or gender diverse across many levels of professional and amateur art practice. Caroline Phillips has been Secretary of the Women's Art Register since 2017. She is a visual artist whose practice combines studio-based and collaborative projects that build feminist community. In her studio work, works Philip uses, Phillips uses sculpture and photography to reconfigure the abstract object as a contemporary feminist strategy. Her work has been exhibited in over 60 solo and group exhibitions. She holds a PhD from the Victorian College of the Arts and has published book chapters, catalogue essays, edited works and um, curated a number of projects. So thank you both very much for being here today. So as I've mentioned, as Bianca mentioned, today's discussion is about alternative collections um, with a focus on archives. So I think we might begin by just giving you each the opportunity to introduce, in your own words, perhaps some, a different perspective from how I have described it, what your organisations are and their beginnings. Caroline. Um, hi, everyone. Um, sorry, I feel like I'm sort of going to be turning around, but um, thanks, Nell, for inviting us onto this panel. It's really exciting. Um, and I guess the Women's Art Register, first and foremost, it's an archive, but it's also a living community of artists. So it started as a very grassroots collective of about 100 women artists who decided to build a, a slide library, which has then become um, much expanded into books and magazines and posters and information folders and 
digital files and we publish a journal and then we also do a lot of professional practice activities to support our members and we come to discussions like this and we hold exhibitions. So the key for us is to actually be um, accessing the archive all the time and drawing on its contents for um, public discussion and contextualising the, the, the archive in many different ways over, over different decades. And um, I guess that not-for-profit and grassroots aspect is something that is really important to us because on the one hand we don't have very much money but it also means that we're independent and we're not attached to any institution and so we have a lot of freedom and I think that's, that's the reason why we still exist. Had we been kind of, you know, co-opted at some point, we probably wouldn't still be here or we wouldn't be in this configuration. So we really value that because it means that we can uh, remain accessible but also um, remain, remain inclusive and, and be quite flexible in our... Um, in our outlook, I guess, and, and we can respond to the needs of our members and the needs of what's happening at the time. That's probably enough for now, yeah. Um, sure, um, so thank you so much. Um, so the Australian Queer Archives uh, was set up in 1978 um, as the Australian Gay Archives, um, when the word gay was a broader term than it is now and um, we became the Australian Lesbian and Gay Archives in 1992 and two years ago became the Queer Archives. Um, when we were established in 1978, we were an initiative of the 4th National Homosexual Conference, uh, which was a community-based activist conference uh, where activists came together to uh, really talk about the issues um, that were um, confronting the movement, as it was termed, the gay movement at the time. And a lot of organisations uh, kind of spun out of that, from the Gay and Lesbian Teachers organisation to the archives and many more. At the time, in 78, uh, there was only one state and one territory that, who had decriminalised homosexuality. And so mainstream institutions weren't collecting the material that we were interested in preserving. Uh, the gay liberation movement was 10 years old and people wanted to access material. Where could they do that? There wasn't anywhere in terms of any mainstream institutions. So if they wanted to do it, they had to contact private individuals or, or others who might have kept materials. So we came out of that activist moment and progressively since that time, our collections have expanded. Uh, we have over 600, 650 shelf metres of material um, that relates to Australia and internationally, but the focus is Australia. Um, and we are, I guess, principally a research organisation. We support researchers, academics, community, community organisations, creatives, uh, and increasingly we lend material to other institutions, um, uh, from the National Portrait Gallery, currently the David Roche Foundation, UNSW Galleries. Uh, we put on exhibitions, both our own, we lend those to others. Uh, it could be digital, we recently did one for the Australian mission to the UN. Uh, we've worked with DFAT or many organisations. Uh, we run an annual history conference, uh, history walks, we publish books, uh, we do talks. Um, so there's a range of things that we do. We're still volunteer run. We do have a two day a week office manager who just came in uh, a couple of months back. Um, but uh, I guess uh, as an organisation, 
um, we still very much value being independent uh, and being able to do the sorts of projects that we want to do and expand without the strictures of being defined by government uh, or specific funding relationships, uh, to have that flexibility and creativity. And also, I guess, for us, we see ourselves as being embedded in community, and that's really important. Um, there, we can do a whole lot of things that mainstream institutions can't do, and we will do things that they would never consider. Um, there's uh, a, a lot of material that mainstream institutions would censor in particular ways um, and have censored. Um, we, we wouldn't do that in the same way. Uh, so it's really important for us to ensure that we maintain those, maintain those connections with community and ensure that that material is preserved uh, and isn't just a fashion of, of institutional uh, interest or neglect. Thank you. I was going to ask um, how you've both mentioned, or Nick, you've specifically mentioned that mainstream institutions weren't collecting queer material, and I was going to ask um, whether you think that um, these mainstream institutions should be more broad or whether you're kind of happy or um, glad that these specialist um, archives exist, but you've both very much mentioned the joys and the benefits of being independent. Um, so perhaps rather I'll ask, has the climate changed? Do you now, do you now see mainstream institutions collecting queer material or um, more women-focused art materials? Or do you still think that you fill a gap in those collecting practices? Uh, both. Um, I guess the thing, you know, certainly historically, um, <coughs> institutions weren't. They were, um, you know, I, I've worked across the institutional sector for over 20 years. And I, you know, I'm, I'm quite well aware of uh, specific instances where institutions destroyed material. You know, the State Library of Queensland destroyed a Maplethorpe portfolio um, uh, uh, worth tens of thousands of dollars. And I know that, you know, uh, for example, pornography, um, we have one of the largest porn collections in Australia. Um, most institutions wouldn't collect that material. And so if we didn't, it would be destroyed. And I know, you know, that's shifted significantly over time. Maybe not on porn, but certainly in terms of other areas. Um, and now, like, we have a situation where they sometimes compete with us or, uh, you know, there is a really strong interest. Um, but I also know that that interest will fade. You know, it's great if, uh, say, the State Library of New South Wales finally gets pressured into doing a queer exhibition, but I know they won't. Again, they'll do another 20 colonial exhibitions and, and something to do with, you know, someone who discovered something. Um, you know, it's, it's not... It, it, they'll come and go. Um, whereas we're here, we'll provide that focus, we provide that intensity and the connection to community that they won't be able to ever achieve. Yep. And Caroline with the Women's Art Register? Yeah, I, th I agree with a lot of what you said. Like, we feel very similarly. Just thinking about the queer show coming on at the MGV as well quite soon. Um, yeah, we feel that we're, we're just... We're there. We're there all the time. We've been there a long time and we'll be there a long time into the future. And some of these kind of trends or a fad might come and go. Um, at the moment, there's a big interest in, in all women shows, which is great, but they are kind of becoming a bit of marketing spin and, and a bit of um, sort of, yeah, a bit of, a bit of a trend that is possibly going to disappear or, or kind of, you know, change, change course at some point. But um, 
we feel that we ha also have materials that they, they might be borrowed for a short time for an exhibition, but they're not materials that other institutions necessarily want to keep. So we'll have ephemera. Some, a lot of places might collect posters, but you know, we've got a couple of tea towels and we've got you know, all kinds of things. Um, and also we've got lesser known artists that um, institutions will pick, you know, cherry pick big names or certain names that are in, in fashion but we actually collect anyone who identifies as a woman artist. So we've got people who do cake decorating and then we've got people who are in the Biennale and, and, and everything in between. So if someone's got a particular project, they, can, they might ask, oh, have you got anything about this? And, and we'll find these things and they'll go, oh my God, I can't believe I've never heard of this person or I can't believe what you've got here. So it's kind of like this sort of safeguarding or sort of, um, yeah, kind of, we're, we're caretakers, we feel like we're sort of, um, like myself at the moment, I'm the person at the moment that's the caretaker, but there's been many before me and there'll be many after me and, and our role is just to kind of look after this material and um, make, make it available. Um, something I've thought of before too was also that we're, Part, going back to the first question about our origins was really about education as well. Like we we began because there was no information about women artists taught at schools. You looked at all the art textbooks and there was one woman and about 60 blokes. And so we really wanted to, you know, redress that mistake and, and we used to, we still do a lot of educational programs such as slide kits and, and talks to institutions and we actually provided material for teachers to teach students at school and and obviously these people come have come through and 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 brought that knowledge with them so that's another really i mean it's education to the public but also for students and young young people coming through and artists coming through and i was i was just going to so, uh, following on from one of that, I think, I, think, <laughs> um, I, th I think one of the one of the key differences there is in is also between the different forms of of the uh, I guess institutions within the glam sector is that what differentiates archives as opposed to yeah. particularly museums and and galleries is often um, that um, relational aspect to knowledge and the complexity of that of what is held and the I guess the attempt to you know flesh that out in much more richness. You know, a lot of the, um, and sure, you know, National Gallery might have 130,000 works with only 1,000 on display, but there's still, there's a lot of things that they will miss and a lot of things that they won't include. You know, the queer exhibition at the moment on at NGV, um, you know, they've been um, <coughs> trying to uh, fill gaps for a couple of years now um, in their collections just for the exhibition because they won't have that material. Um, and, you know, it, it, they can never fill all of this, those gaps anyway, so. And also things like artist files. So they might be collecting a work to show or acquire a work, but we can provide correspondence, you know, between the artist and and somebody else talking about why they made that painting, or there might be photographs of them working, or um, there'll be random catalogue um, flyers, exhibition flyers, just other materials that that are, are documents that kind of just sit there. Um, but aren't necessarily something that an institution, you know, um, borrowing a work is going to necessarily know about. 
depending who's loaning the artwork, I suppose. So we'll get, like, we've had the um, State Library of Victoria or the Art Gallery of New South Wales contact us and say, we're doing an exhibition on so-and-so, what have you got? And invariably, we'll pull out something that they're just, you know, it's quite surprised that we have it. It'll just be one slip of paper or it'll be an interview or it'll be a statement that the, uh, the artist wrote down in their own words and deposited with us that they would just not know about otherwise. Yeah, their thought, you know, direct uh, transcriptions of their thoughts and experience, yeah, which is amazing. Mm. And so with this outreach activity, with exhibitions, with um, different publications or contributing research, do you have a specific public in mind? Is it kind of the broad Australian audience? Is it um, people who previously haven't been conscious of or engaged with women's art practice? Or do you also have this kind of, um, kind of sub-focus, or I'm not sure the way to describe it, for serving the community of women artists? Do you yeah. kind of... Because both, both archives have a very specific um, kind of community interest group yeah. or group that you collect for, but does that differ from who the public is that you serve? Yeah. For, for us, the audience is everybody. So um, it's artists, students, curators, gen general public. Quite often it's somebody who's a relative of, of an artist who will inquire or they've found a painting, you know, in the, the garage or something and they want more information or someone's passed away and they want to just find out more. Um, it will be researchers, it might be um, students coming through, it's, it's, it's anyone who wants to know, like there's no sort of filter about that. But we might at certain times target certain outreach, like I said, to schools or to university students. But it also depends what's happening at the moment, like you've invited us here and, and we respond to that. So we're kind of open. Um, and... Yeah, we don't, we don't pretend to assume, you know, who's going to be interested and in what they're going to be interested in. Um, we just try and respond, yeah. Yeah, I think, I mean, similarly, we're, we're very open in terms of what we do. Um, uh, you know, principally the, our, the collection users, uh, in terms of people who access on-site or access a lot of original materials, are academic researchers. Um, community groups, uh, so members of community, um, organizations um, but it's also it's such a diverse range you know when they had the expungement legislation around expunging uh, criminal convictions for people who had been criminalized around um, co um, consensual sexual activity it was providing research information I guess and support for uh, different governments who wanted to uh, connect with people who had uh, been subject to criminalization uh, last week it was Dan Murphy's, or actually it was a company, an advertising agency who was working with Dan Murphy's to do a project on uh, Pride Foundation. Uh, so it's, it's really, it's incredibly diverse in terms of who accesses the collection. And then there's also what we push out in terms of social media, uh, Facebook, <coughs> and the way that we try to, I guess, also do public history. Uh, so whether or not that's our exhibitions or lending material or, or putting stuff out through forms to access, um, you know, um, or as young people tell me more recently that we need to get onto TikTok um, <laughs> and Instagram and I get increasingly feeling like I'm very old, uh, which is true. 
but is, is, it is also important, you know, part of what we want to do is to make the collection discoverable, to make it uh, findable and to put it into, um, you know, I guess I don't want to have conversations with young people where they would immediately go to American queer history because that's where they can find it and not know that there is this huge wealth of material. Um, and similarly, so we can also help disrupt those um, existing histories and work with the mainstream institutions to help uh, them to trouble their own um, narratives. And so in kind of collecting or preserving and sharing those um, kind of alternative or histories that are outside of the mainstream, how subjective is the role of the archivist or how objective is the role? Um, do you have power in shaping that narrative? Uh, or, yeah, <laughs> how does that happen? Yeah, I mean, I think it's incredibly... Um, look, I think a lot of... The, I mean, I'm, I'm a proactive uh, uh, collection uh, manager, so in the sense that a lot of work that I do is going out to solicit material. So it's identifying material, it's working with uh, communities, it's seeing... Uh, it's uh, analysing what we've got, but it's also, you know, I do a lot of projects, say, with First Nations communities uh, around Australia, queer First Nations communities, and so a lot of that is working in partnership, making collections specifically discoverable. Um, you know, we, I did a project on digitisation, uh, uh, which was with Gail Sengage, a big international uh, library archive um, uh, company, and, and so that was also going through and going, okay, so, you know, disability title, Asian-Australian title, um, you know, sporting, um, HIV AIDS, all of, looking at, at trying to uh, make a digital resource which is as complex as possible. And so I, I, a lot of that in terms of trying to see how it, um, you can be proactive. Um, uh, and uh, no, I usually go back to one of our, we have two patrons and one is Joan Nessel who helped found the Lesbian History Archives in New York in 1973 and she said, look, if there was gay Nazi material, we would collect it and that's the same with us. I collect the Australian Christian Lobby, I make that association deliberately and, um, you know, I w it's across the board, whether it's conservative and, and uh, all the way through to whatever. Yeah, we're quite similar in the sense that we don't sort of censor what what's, might be coming in. The, the, the only criteria is if someone identifies as a woman artist and they're, they're self-identifying. Um, and the, the issue is about resources and, and time. So um, we, we always have a backlog of materials. I know you've got a, a lot of backlog and you've got to manage volunteer. We're all volunteer-based as well. So it, it's a lot of work to process the materials and so depending on the format that it comes in it might be well that pile looks easier to do than than that pile so I'll choose that pile but we do um, you know give everyone the same weight like we're often talking about someone who at, at the moment I'll just go back a step at the moment we're upgrading all our information files and we, we got a grant from public records to to rehouse them in beautiful acid-free folders and at the same time we're attaching keywords and just um, reviewing, um, you know, the, the catalogue entry and that sort of thing. And we also have duplicate files in the Richmond Library, which is upstairs above our building, above our room. So we're going through every single file from A to Z and we're only up to C at the moment, so it's a slow process. But sometimes there'll be a file that only has one document in it or two documents. 
and you just you tend to think, oh, well, you know, I'll just do that quickly. But then you realise it's that person, it's that person's work, it's their career, and then there might be a reason why we only have one thing. But that doesn't mean they've only done one artwork, you know. And then someone else might have six folders and takes three people two hours to sort of process. So um, yeah, there are conversations about that, but it's not to do with the the quality of a person's work or the the value we assign to that to that person. Like we definitely um, have a, a level, you know, playing field in that sense um, that we treat everyone's work of equal value, regardless of their commercial success or professional success um, in the art world at any given time, which obviously varies a lot over the decades. Yeah. It is interesting, though, that like um, minute level of detail when you're doing processing and, mm. and you're cataloguing and you're thinking, um, you know, do I do folder level entry? Do I do how do I, box level entry? Do I do item yeah. level entry? And yeah. you know the sorts of things. Um, and also, you know, whether or not it's going to be uh, likely to be researched. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I can go into incredible detail about, an, say, a radio program, um, but it, do I do it on subject? Uh, or how do, I, how do I describe, do I always uh, put people's names? Do I then try and find the exact spelling of their names if I'm not sure? Mm -hmm. You know, the level of work that you need to often do to process things to make it discoverable, but to also know the, the likely research uh, strategies of individuals to know what they would access. Yeah. Thank you. And we can be selective within that and we can invite um, certain people to donate or encourage, encourage donations yes, on a that. certain subject, but you're still left with what is offered, which kind of shapes the collection in its own way. So are you able to go out and acquire and purchase, or are you both donation-based as well? We're pretty much donation-based, largely because we don't really have a budget to purchase things. So there's been quite a few large books about women and feminist art recently that we really wanted to have. And so we just put out the word and uh, to, to various people that we hope might be in the position to buy it for us. And a couple of those have appeared, which is great. Um, the other thing about that is we do have a collection policy. So occasionally we'll be like, oh, you know, this, this is about design or architecture or some aspect. And it's like, oh, that's just maybe just outside of our collection policy. But then again, we might think, oh, it's a beautiful book, or we really like that person. So we might keep it if, if there's room. But sometimes there's not, so we might find another home for it. Mm. Yeah, that's, that's the same with us, uh, both collection policies and, and funding. And uh, so we, we do some, occasionally we do some specific call-outs uh, for funding. Uh, we did get a fantastic collection of um, feminist art posters from Sydney mm. um, last year, which we did a we call out, although I think I <coughs> probably spent a couple of thousand of my own dollars on that. Mm. And, you know, these things are passion projects as well as volunteers, and so I'm, I'm sure, as is the case with other volunteer projects, you sometimes kind of push yourself a little bit. Um, so there's been a few, but the vast majority is donations, and often it is uh, just putting call-outs or, or contacting. A lot of uh, authors, and particularly academics, are quite happy to just don mm. donate copies. Mm. Um, and I do try and kind of promote this idea that we're a deposit library for the queer community. Um, hasn't always worked, um, but, um, you know, just to try to get people engaged and to see that, um, you know, we're here, we've been here for a long time, they want to make it, you know, accessible to people. It's a great way to preserve. Mm -hmm. 
And another thing that's important for our collection is that our, our membership um, is eligible to donate their own materials. So a lot of our members are artists and so they'll, they'll send in a, you know, a couple of satchels of things of their own work, which is great. Yeah. And the living archive, or is mm. that the exact phrase that is your um, kind of subheading or, or yeah, vision statement? Yeah, we, we kind of settled on that a, a few years ago because we wanted to really define what it is apart from just being an archive. Mm. So it is that live community. On the one hand, it, it's from it, the fact that it's growing and we keep receiving new materials and sharing those materials, but it's also about supporting a membership base and a community, so with professional practice workshops and mentoring artists. And, and for a lot of women artists, their, their deposit of their work in the register is the only place that their work is actually collected. It's the documentation of their work, it's not their actual work. But, you know, women will come in and say, oh, you know, I, I can be hit by a bus tomorrow and, and that's okay because I know you've got my, st my stuff in your file. You know, like it's that, it's their life's work that they hand over to us in, in this sort of, you know, um, very serious kind of manner at times. And it may be the only person, the only place where someone's interested in what they've been doing for, for decades, you know. And, and that's really very humbling to us as well. Um, and so that's also the live aspect of it, that we can have this cross-generational conversation and this mentoring and support and it's actually about leaving the legacy of these thousands of women. Like we've, we've, we've got over 5,000 artists represented in the, in the collection and it's just this incredible um, legacy of you know, what's, what's come before and, and um, that intergenerational sort of um, continuum, I suppose, yeah. yeah they're, they're concepts that are really important for us as well. Like, we do oral history interviews, yeah. um, and I think we've got over 600 interviews in our collection, and, and often it feels like, um, because a lot of them are life story interviews, you go and you meet somebody mm -hmm. in their later years, and it feels like you're kind of like the harbinger of death um, yep. kind of going and documenting, preserving their legacy. Mm. Um, but it is also about, you know, for a lot of people uh, feeling that their story is worthy, uh, that they're That's part so. of a community and that this is their community and their legacy to other people. Yep. Um, and I think archives are a really interesting space to um, have that, that uh, whether or not it's space, whether or not it's material, whether or not it's events to do intergenerational engagement. Um, because so often, you know, there, there aren't always the spaces to have, you know, um, familial lineage to tell family histories about queer communities um, and there's not the same spaces. So, and, you know, having those ways, if it's not immediately apparent, um, to communicate. And I think, you know, probably the same with the lack historically of, of, of those, uh, um, you know, galleries not, you know, having those uh, conversations and yeah. information. And the education at art schools can be very patchy, like a lot of undergrad students or younger students come through and they can't believe that they haven't seen these artists before because it's something that directly links to their own practice and ideas that they're interested in, whether it's about the body or gender or performance, that kind of thing. And, and we'll go, oh, you should look at so-and-so. And they're like, oh, my God, I can't believe, you know, they didn't teach me that at art school or I didn't never heard about that. And... It's, you know, it might be 40 years 
uh, difference in the, in the ages, um, which is not that much really, but there's a huge gap in, in, in certain generations that just, um, for some reason, have not been exposed to those stories before. They know about, you know, super famous artists, perhaps from the States, or um, artists that have made it to that kind of, you know, superstar status, but then there's a lot of other work that's gone on and quite local artists, and um, it can really mean a lot to their contemporary practice and, and the direction that they take in their, in their work. I think that in, informal kind of reference sort of work, you know, the knowledge of the people who work in archives and libraries, you know, to make those connections, which mm. aren't always apparent in a library system or an archive system, um, are really, really important. Because mm. um, you wouldn't, yeah, it is, it's really hard to discover a lot of that material. And so you've spoken about the role of the archivist as a caretaker and as a researcher or a reference librarian. And, but Nick, you also were talking about some of the kind of specifics and mechanics of archiving in terms of um, different access points and the ways that you index items. And for our audience, who I assume are perhaps more general than the three of us who are all, all information management Obsessed. professionals, yeah. <laughs> um, if you could just talk a bit about um, the kind of technical aspects of what a professional archivist does, um, especially since I think over the last kind of five or ten years there's been a bit of an archival turn in art making and it's a bit of a hot topic. Um, but how are archivists kind of different from your average artist who's interested in an archive? It's more than just collecting things, isn't it? Yes. Um, I'm not a technical librarian or an archivist. I'm an art historian by training and found my way through uh, working at the National Library, uh, National Archives, National Gallery, National Film and Sound Archive, a few other places. Um, so it's through doing, I guess, and a lot of the, the, the principles might sound really straightforward in some ways, um, respect to fonds or respecting archival order and all of those other concepts. Um, but a lot of the the process is it's really um, it's um, respecting collections and 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 the person who formed them and with an eye to making it discoverable to researchers um, is the simple way of describing it I guess um, and but when it comes down to it it also deals with everything else from preservation um, and that could be quite complex particularly in my say uh, doing audiovisual uh, preservation work um, through to um, yeah, just the volume of, of work. Um, you know, when you're dealing with tens of thousands of pieces of paper, um, it just it's time consuming, and it's slow, and it can be meticulous, and it can be boring, and it can be also fascinating. You know, to it's sometimes it's almost like meeting someone to have their papers and to go through it, and to and uh, you know sometimes it can be really hard, like one of my favourite objects in the archives is an obituary register uh, from the Sydney Star Observer, which was a, uh, a, gay, a gay paper in Sydney, and it was, it's from the uh, period of, I guess, the height of the HIV AIDS pandemic, and, um, you know, it's just line after line of people's names and the issue and often the photo because the person who made the obituary would leave the photo there, so it could be done every single year on the same date. And so you're looking at these photos with like little notes on the back, um, you know, and it's quite affecting the process of, of dealing with that and dealing with, you know, very personal things and 
our archive probably deals with more personal than some because we're dealing with sex and desire and relationships and breakups in a way that I think many people wouldn't put into a mainstream institution. So it is a little different in terms of what we do. Um, but yeah, the, the process is, um, can be a lot of work, <laughs> which people don't see. They just see a lovely catalogue record and a finding aid. Um, but it's, it's time consuming. Yeah, I'd agree with that and, and the, the issue of um, just taking care and being quite orderly. Like, it's, it's hard. You sort of have to try and follow a consistent sort of process and sometimes maybe you don't but then you realise why because you can't retrieve that item or, you know, like, it, it, you constantly get reminded of why you need to do it in this particular way. So it can be counterintuitive. But also what you were talking about with the, the stories and those items, it's, it's very intimate at times, you know, you, you're handling these things and, and reading these, especially if something's handwritten or old, old photos and that kind of things, and you really do get a sense of, of just being, you know, in, in this intimate space with these people and the events or the stories surrounding it. And we often get a lot of stories, say, of women artists who um, had this extremely active and vibrant and, and engaged and, you know, intellectual and um, active sort of artistic career, but often in a very secretive sense, and perhaps you get that too with um, the queer archives, that depends who they're talking to. So it might be a, a, an interview, uh, um, an article in the newspaper, an interview, or it might be a letter to their, their lover or correspondence with a friend and, and depending on the context you, you, it draws out different kinds of levels of that, that intimacy I guess and um, so a lot, of, a lot of women for example they, they weren't allowed to paint or they didn't have the money or they were married to somebody and, and they were defined as you know being, being a wife but at home they had this incredible vibrant life and they'd have a salon and they'd paint and they'd dress up or do whatever it is they did but it was it was very domestic and interior and it wasn't wasn't public and um, so those kind of stories are really interesting but um, and trying to capture that and translate that in the present day to someone who's researching is really interesting uh, experience I think yeah but yeah it's a lot of slog of just details and um, with the conservation aspects, um, we're really fortunate that we get a lot of volunteers and sometimes interns from Melbourne Uni from the Grimwade Centre where they do the Masters of Materials Conservation. And we rely on that because I'm, I'm not a trained conservator and we don't have the funds to pay for um, a lot of workshops or training programs. So they, they come in and, and they're learning the most up-to-date skills and industry sort of practice and they can share that with us and we can teach others. And so that's really helped us kind of lift our level of, you know, perfect professional conservation, particularly in the last five years or so, which is really good. Mm. So both of your organisations are very community-based and the work that you do is very slow and um, perhaps... Uh, you're not trying to be. You're not trying to be productive, and oh, that's the wrong way to put it. You're trying to be productive, but you're not um, kind of rushing to the clock or um, counting the number of hours that you're getting paid for. Is being volunteer-run an important part of your ethos and how you function? Yes, 
Um, yeah, no, definitely. It, I mean, it, it's something by default we can't not be because we just don't have the funds. Um, you know, we are very grateful. We're funded by our members, um, so we have really low membership costs. $5 student, low income and unemployed, get on it. Price of a cup of coffee. Um, but people give over and above. Uh, and so that's where we get our, our principal funding. We do get project funding, uh, so digitisation occasionally funding or... Um, you know, no one wants to fund core services because that's not sexy, or uh, no one wants to fund storage. Um, but you know, there's you, you do with what you can, um, and you know, I think increasingly funding organisations uh, expect that you include administration costs and other costs in there, and I think you know that's really great. Um, but yeah, in terms of that, it, you know, the volunteers um, in all of the aspects of what we do. Um, whether or not it's processing or it's uh, managing volunteers or doing any of that, um, there is a really great um, community and family and um, it's, it is wonderful. I mean, it's been really tough during um, lockdowns because we haven't been able to have the volume of volunteers in and um, I no longer get um, lemon drizzle cake on a Tuesday night, so that really sucks. Yeah. I, I cultivate them um, doing bake-offs in our volunteers. It's a great strategy for getting more volunteers. But you don't have any cake, you know, right next to the archive with the materials, because that would be a no-no. No, no, no. Gosh, no, no. We never do that kind of thing. No. <laughs> Everybody has to wash their hands. <laughs> but you don't have to wear white cotton gloves. You can wear nitrile gloves and other fun things. So, mm. don't. <laughs> yeah, I think it's quite similar for us as well. Um, and, and you get different kinds of people, so there's a certain group of older volunteers who may be retired or they happen to live close by or they work part-time, and they're just interested in um, doing something productive with their time and making a contribution, or they, want, they feel they want to kind of give back for, to, to the archive, or they're, they're firm believers of the cause. You know, we have that aspect as, as well, which we all are anyway, I guess. And then there's a, a totally different demographic, which is younger students and artists coming through. And, you know, there might be 50 years difference in age between these people, but we sit around and we get along and we, and we you know, do projects together and, and that's really inspiring. Like, you know, we just... Talking about TikTok and stuff, like, I'm always asking, um, you know, how do I do this and, um, you know... I don't know anything about Instagram and stuff, and yeah, I'm becoming one of the old fossils as well. And but but I feel like it's kind of you, you just learn, you you in you can connect with different um, generations coming through, I suppose. But their outlook is really great because they might just come in for a very short time, but they'll have an impact and they'll have a great response, and then they'll go and do something amazing with it, or they might come back later. And then there's other volunteers that might be. Um, perhaps doing an internship or, or they're doing it for their CV because they're, you know, trying to get into the arts industry, which is very difficult. And, and that's great as well because they've got professional motivations and different kinds of skills. And so, um, yeah, it's, it's really... Uh, I think if it, if it was a paid kind of thing, it, it just wouldn't work that way, I don't think, because, yeah, it would just be a different scenario. We're, we're all there because we choose to be there and we want to be there. And... Um, yeah, I think that's a really powerful aspect of it as well. Mm. We were speaking just before we started this kind of public discussion that if we 
each had more money, we would increase storage. So I was wondering if we could speak a bit about storage and um, the issues that that uh, gives you and that you're faced with in terms of storage and how that dictates what you can and can't collect. Yeah, that's it's definitely it's always a big issue, and because we're uh, we, the, the, I guess the nature of our community archive is that we collect much more broadly than most would expect. So we have leather jackets and dildo moulds, we have um, paper-based, we have textiles, we have 800 t-shirts and 150 banners, we have 1,300 badges, and I could honestly go on forever. Um, but so there's all this material, so we have to look at the way that, you know, we have a probably have about 550 shelf metres on site, including compactors. We have two off-site stores, uh, including uh, managed storage and self-managed storage. Our self-managed storage includes our surplus and duplicate paper-based material, and our additional managed storage includes our audiovisual and framed material. Um, so, and the audiovisual material is kept at low temperature, low humidity. Um, and then we also have digital storage uh, and three digital backups. So in terms of what we do, and, and with that, that's, um, you know, we would have close to 15 terabytes of digital material and increasingly with digital acquisitions, I had one last year that was 24,000 photos. Um, so the volumes that we're talking about for a community <laughs> are pretty substantial uh, and having to manage across all of those uh, requires increasingly to be, I guess, up with a lot of the professional standards. And I'm really grateful that we do have a number of people who work in the industry. I'm a curator at the National Film and Sound Archive, so I, I'm familiar with a lot of these things. But it is, it's not, it's not straightforward in the sense it's not just a book on a shelf. Uh, not saying that that's in any way of a concern, but just in the sense that it is quite complex when it comes to alternative materials. And, um, you know, the issues that you have to, uh, to deal with uh, for something like leather preservation uh, can be quite an issue. Um, so, yeah, space is constantly a concern and, you know, there are collections that I'm currently dealing with that would totally max out the remainder of our free space. Uh, I've been working with one donor who has about 75 shelf metres of material at his home and I've been working with him personally um, uh, for eight years on his collection. I think we're about 25 shelf metres in. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, your archives is... I don't know, maybe 10 times bigger than us, I don't know, we're, we're still relatively small. Um, we have a small fig physical space, but fortunately we have a good relationship with the Richmond Library, the city of Yarra. So we have duplicate files upstairs in the library that people can access, you know, in regular library hours. They have this area called the Grotto, which is this mysterious underground compactus world and we can sort of spill over there, but it's not the, the conditions, you know, we'll, that's where we'll tend to put, you know, the old video machines and um, hardware and stuff, not necessarily the, the collections. But we're really, really, really at capacity now and we're really starting to worry about it because over the pandemic, a lot of people have donated a lot of material because they've been at home. I've done it myself, start doing your own archives and um, it's great, but it's just like, oh, we've only got this much space left on the shelf and after that, where are we going to put it, you know? So we're actually um, looking at trying to find new premises. We're coming up to our 50th anniversary in a few years' time, in 2025, and we've just been um, approved as a charity, which is really exciting. So we're kind of going into this new wave of sort of 
our whole governance and our structure and we can do hopefully do things like start a bequest program and start some kind of a bigger scale I guess of, of operations which hopefully will mean you know finances coming in that to the point that we can can move but there's a lot of things that have sort of got to line up for that to happen and we're just just starting that that process now um, but it's like we we have to if we don't do that then we're just going to kind of fossilize we'll, we'll we'll probably lock ourselves into the archive because we'll need the space you know in front of the door and it just feels like it's just going to, uh, what's the word, like fossilise or something if we, if we don't let it grow. We had this conversation the other day about the archive is like this sort of organism and it just feeds off uh, people who are um, obsessed with, um, you know, order and archives and various issues. And at times over our history, it's, it's ebbed and flowed of interest and, and membership and activity. In the mid-90s, it nearly closed down. There was only about 30 members left and they almost handed it all over to the State Library. But there was three or four women who said, no, let's keep going. And they did. And now we're back up to about 300 members and it's, it's on the incline again. So we feel like it is this kind of independent organism that just feeds on whoever wants to contribute and we don't want to have to say no to people or to objects and materials. So we're sort of at this pretty important point, I think, that hopefully we can um, be successful in these, these very grand plans that we have. Um, so watch out for 2025. There's going to be lots happening. Um, yeah, and hopefully it involves somewhere with a window and more space and a gallery and a reading room and... Storage. Windows, windows are really nice when you're processing. Yeah, window, yeah. a window would be great. Like we're yeah. in this little basement and, uh, yeah, we don't, we don't need much. Just a window, fresh air. <laughs> yeah. So, um, yeah, that's where we're kind of at. Whereas you, congratulations, just moved to the Pride Centre and that must be just Thank so... You. I remember you'd been talking about it for maybe five, five, ten years or something. It's been... Yeah, no, the, plan, yeah the Pride Centre started uh, the process, I think, uh, six years ago um, and so it was a you know herding 90 community organizations into community discussions you can imagine how fun that was um, you know there was editorials in the Australian about various things it was quite amusing um, but you know uh, it was some, a lot of committed organizations individuals um, and unusually state government and local government uh, who came to the party and we were able to design our space uh, which was really, really awesome. Uh, we had the floor reinforced because the compactus is so heavy. We had the roof uh, raised, which raised the entire building, so we had to get a planning amendment. Um, so, yeah, you know, it's uh, getting um, a different finish on the windows so we don't have UV coming in. Uh, and it's all those fun little things being on separate air conditioning systems, um, but which is great. Um, you know, you rarely get an opportunity to design your space. So, yeah. Oh, well done. Come on down. Congratulations on coming up to your 50th year. That's massive. Thanks. Yeah, <laughs> it's really exciting. So we're planning to publish a book about the history of the register because there's just so many amazing stories and activities. Um, for example, in 1988, some of you might know that the Judy Chicago's dinner party work was exhibited in Melbourne and it was the, um, the, the tenth and final iteration of this global tour. It was very controversial because it was the bicentenary year. We didn't have anything to do with the exhibition, but what we did was 
we, um, meaning the organisation, not me, but um, we held a dinner in the exhibition buildings with 1,200 women that came and sat down to a meal with flowers and everything. And Judy Chicago came and spoke, and it was just this incredible event. We've got all this material about, you know, the small army of people that organised that and, and carried it off. You know, it was really amazing. And we've done exhibitions with um, the Koori Heritage Trust and different um, exhibitions throughout the years. And just a lot of um, high points and low points, I guess, that we want to capture yeah. and, and put... There can't be many other kind of second wave organisations who are still extant. There's not. Like, we're actually the, the only one, actually, globally that's been going for that amount of time that is still a live community of artists. There's, there's an archive in England which is still continuing, but it's just the, the, the collection itself and it's been handed over to a major institution. Mm. So you can go and, and access it, but it doesn't have the group. There was a, a big group in um, Canada, in Toronto, that had started, I think, in 76, and they closed in uh, 2012. Mm. I actually went there to go and have a look and they closed six months before I was there, so it was really sad. And then there's um, quite a few groups in Europe. There's some in Germany and in Italy that have been going quite a long time but started you know, later than us. But a lot of those groups aren't necessarily an, an archive. They, mu they might have started that way, but now they do something else. There's one that's an audiovisual kind of performance group, which is, uh, looks really amazing. Um, so, yeah, we believe we're actually the, the longest one and only one kind of still That's surviving. Incredible. Yeah. Because yeah. all the other uh, feminist libraries in Australia have all... Women's libraries have all moved into institutions, I think. Yeah. yeah. Yep. There was a slide library in, in Sydney that actually started um, the year before us but closed down after about five years. Mm -hmm. There was also one in Adelaide which ended up merging with our collection. Um, yeah, but... You know, running continuously since that time is um, very unique and something that we really want to, mm. you know, um, just let let people know about more. And um, yeah, and we're planning to have some special exhibitions as well, and we might be producing a film as well. Oh, wow. um, so we're we're planning on some big ticket items if all goes well. Yeah, we'll have to have um, an exhibition in the Pride Centre too. And yeah, we've got the. Clear archives on our steering committee as well, so we're in discussions. Yeah, definitely. Already got ideas. Good. good. <laughs> and yeah. Nick, would you like to perhaps share what the future of the queer archives are? Oh sure. Um, yeah. Look, I. <laughs> I don't think so. I think I'm kind of wedded to it now, but. Um, yeah, no, I think for, for us as an organisation, you know, we've just moved into the Pride Centre, it's a great new space, and for us, uh, the next kind of, in the short term, it's really getting volunteers back, it's getting, getting stuff back, but um, I think we have a long-term vision of having our own building, uh, at least that's my vision, um, having our own museum space uh, in addition to the archive. You know, we now have a little exhibition space in our reading room and we've got the Pride Centre Gallery, the Pride Gallery. Uh, so we've already had some uh, uh, exhibitions there. But it's really about, um, you know, ensuring the sustainability of us as an organisation, um, bringing on uh, new people, expanding uh, the kind of subcommittees and other people coming on. I think the, the big challenge for most community organisations is uh, uh, generational change and renewal and as ensuring that um, you're constantly bringing people in 
and that you don't burn out your volunteers too much um, because you know it, uh, people get passionate, they uh, take too much, and then they leave. So yeah.